Welcome to episode 45 of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host, and on this episode, I have on the father of the 401k. Um, his name is Ted Benna. He's sort of warmed up to that title, but he doesn't super love it. But it's true. He did, you know, kind of uh, create the, the 401k as we know it today um, back in 1979. So we talk about that whole story about how he kind of came up with the idea and what it was originally used for. But I mean, just quickly, the 401k is, it's basically a, a contribution retirement plan that allows everything to happen kind of pre-tax. So it's, we get into all this kind of stuff. And then, um, Ted talks about why it may not necessarily be the best thing anymore and how there's kind of different structures that work better. And, um, especially if you're a small employer. So we talk a lot about that. Um, and it, it's a very, very interesting conversation. I think you're really going to appreciate it and learn a lot because everybody has retirement stuff, um, even self-employed and everything like myself. So, uh, I highly recommend it. We get into, you know, it gets detailed, but Ted does a good job of doing a high level, you know, overview of things and keeping it understandable without getting into like the super detailed stuff. And, uh, that's it. I think you're going to like it. And it's a really important episode to, uh, to listen to and to think about this stuff. So, uh, without further ado, here is Ted Benna, the father of the 401k. And boom, we're going. How are you doing, Ted? Hey, Travis, I'm doing great. Nice to be with you today. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of exciting to talk to you. You're the father of the 401k. Hey, that's a label that they gave me uh, some years ago. It, uh, it took me a while to get used to it, uh, you know, but uh, at this stage of life, I uh, you know, embrace it. Right. <laughs> I re- recently wrote a book, actually, that I got out last fall. It's called uh, 401k 40 Years Later. And what I was going through and finalizing that and you know, pulled all the uh, historical information I have there, you know, the early articles I was able to get published and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it was definitely a uh, reminder of the fact that, you know, the reality is that I put this thing on the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you got to face it, you're the father of the 401k, right, Ted? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh sounds like you don't have a bumper sticker that says I, I'm the father of the 401k or anything, huh? No, I, I definitely do not. <laughs> well, maybe we should look into that. Maybe someone will send you something. Yeah, well, closest I got to that was uh, actually when we originally got this going, one of the things we checked legally was to see whether we could copyright or patent it, and we were told we couldn't. So the uh, what we did was we, we came up with uh, – a name that we used to disguise what we were doing, you know, using smoke and mirrors. We we called it Cash Op, C-A-S-H-O-P. And so some of the early articles we got published didn't say anything about 401k. It used that name. And, you know, the reason, reason I'm bringing it up is uh, our finance guy did bless me at one point with a license plate that had that on it. And... Uh, yeah, that was kind of, I uh, had an interesting story or two, uh, you know, the one with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. What? So why was it, where did that name come from? Well, there's something called ESOP and, uh, you know, employee stock ownership and, and there were some other. So 
401k technically is a cash or deferred plan. Uh-huh. So uh, we just uh, piggyback off that, to, you know, you call it cash op for cash option. Oh, okay. I see. Okay, man. Well, cool. I mean, yeah, let's get into it. Cause your book is, you know, very interesting 40 years later, how, you know, you kind of talk about how it was, how you came up with it and the whole thing like that. So I definitely want to hear that story, even though I'm sure you've told it a hundred times. And then, um, yeah, we'll kind of get into how other companies started using it and how you think people should use it and everything like that. But, um, yeah, let's just start. Can you bring us back to, uh, you know, the day you kind of started, you know, figuring this out in your mind in, in 1979 and how it all started? Sure. I'd be glad to the, um, you know, what got me involved in putting the pieces together was I was, uh, working on an assignment for, for one of our bank clients. And, you know, that's that's when my creative juices, uh, juices get flowing is when I have an actual project that I've been hired, you know, by a client to uh, come up with an answer. And, uh, you know, they wanted to restructure the retirement program. And without getting too deeply engaged in that, as I was uh, working on what they wanted to accomplish, I... Uh, knew this section of the law, which had been passed in 1978, would provide a vehicle for them to do that. But key, key to making it work was that we needed to get participation, sufficient level of participation from the lower two, two-thirds paid of the bank employees, Travis. And, uh, you know, and I knew when working with other banks that a uh, tax break wasn't going to be enough to do that. So that was when I did something that uh, no one had ever thought of before, and that was linking a matching employer contribution to this section of the tax law, 401k. Mm-hmm. You know, there, were, there wasn't anything in the law that said you could. There also wasn't anything saying that, you know, thou shalt not. Uh, so the idea here was that I felt that when we went to the uh, you know the order paid employees at the bank and said by doing this you're going to get a you know adult incentive you're going to get tax break plus you're going to get some additional money from the bank via matching contribution I uh, thought there's a pretty good uh, chance that we would get this thing to work and once you know once I linked those two pieces it became obvious to me immediately that this thing had tremendous potential. Uh, And the reason for that was that uh, most of the larger companies around the country, you know, the IBMs, the General Motors, et cetera, already had in place matching savings plans where employees were able to put their money in after tax and they got a match from their employers. Mm -hmm. And shoot, I realized all of a sudden here, we had the opportunity to go out and approach them and say, Hey, how would you like to start putting your money into this uh, savings plan pre-tax rather than after tax? Uh, you know, it didn't uh, take long for me to um, realize that this thing had tremendous potential. Okay, so that that was the that's really the whole the main benefit that you found was that you they were able to to you know match the savings, but it do it pre-tax, correct? Absolutely, and then the other part that I. Um, occurred to me at that time was the possibility that employees would be able to put money into this type of plan 
pre-tax themselves. And you know, there wasn't anything in the uh, in the law saying that you could do that. Uh, you know, this section was added uh, legally to the IRS code strictly for employer-funded plans. And uh, so, you know, the idea of employees being able to also participate in this thing by making contributions on their own, uh, yeah, it was a, certainly a, a totally new idea as well. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, is that what the the 401k was originally written for? It was like, why was it originally kind of added to the tax code, I guess? It, it, it was added uh, without going into the detailed history to provide specific rules for operating employer-funded cash-deferred profit-sharing plans. You know, those plans had been in limbo for quite a few years as a result of an announcement Treasury had made, you know, back in 1972 that they weren't sure you know, they like these plans anymore. And so their future was in doubt all the way from 72 to 1978. Okay. Okay. So I, I kind of see that. And then you were the one who came along and then said, well, hey, maybe we can use it this way for employers to put money in. But there's nothing to say you you could do it necessarily, but nothing to say you couldn't either. So let's let's do it and let's try it. Yeah. And, and so the main thing here that's important for people to know is that you know, 401k obviously, as we're aware of today, is a household name. I mean, you know, you pick up books. I mean, whatever you read, you know, you see 401k mentioned all over the place, and mm-hmm. you know, it was totally unknown. You know, back at that time, and it was never intended to be the big thing that it is today. So, politically, it's a fluke. You know, it was never put in in law to turn the retirement world upside down. I mean, that's the uh, probably the most bizarre thing, you know, from a political point of view. It's uh, now the backbone of the private retirement system, the way that most people were going to save for retirement. And, you know, over the last 40 years, it's helped accumulate probably somewhere around $15 trillion. I mean, astounding amount of money. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So, So when you figured this out was, you know, was the IRS or the government like, hey, no, no, wait a minute, that's not what you're supposed to do here? Or were they kind of like on board with it? Uh, tra- Travis, that's a uh, really fantastic question because my senior partner, was Ed Johnson, was concerned that once this thing starts to get publicized, uh, certainly Treasury Department reads for articles pointing to tax breaks, you know, that uh, – <laughs> They uh, hadn't anticipated, and so he was concerned that, you know, once that started to happen, that they uh, might shut this thing down. So we were fortunate. Uh, you know, this uh, this was when Ronald Reagan had just uh, been elected, and one of his cabinet members was a uh, was a client and a friend of ours. So we approached him and presented this, and he quickly said, "Well, what do you guys want?" We said, "Hey, look, uh, introduce us." over to the treasury officials who are working on this thing. That gave me the opportunity to talk with the guy at treasury who was responsible for the regulations that were really going to govern the future of these plans. And, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to tell him what we were doing, uh, you know, uh, have a meaningful discussion about this with him. And I was pretty confident that the matching contribution was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, the big 
biggest doubt I had was whether the regulations would allow employees to make pre-tax contributions themselves. And, you know, I had a discussion with him about the fact that if they didn't allow that, it was going to be very difficult administratively for Treasury to enforce the regulations otherwise, you know, without, you know, getting into the, buried into the details of this. But, you know, the reality is, uh, you know, we uh, we were anxious about it until uh, months later, the proposed regulations came out and, uh, you know, supported uh, both of these and, uh, you know, kind of uh, clear, cleared the way for the future then. Okay. Awesome. So, I, so you were very... Um... You're very cautious and, and upfront about what you were doing and, and kind of getting the okay before you really implemented it, huh? Well, he, he frankly, he didn't give me any insight into whether what we were doing was going to be okay or not. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we were flying on our own. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, a number, when we got out there and started talking to major employers, uh, you know, like uh, Bethlehem Steel and J.C. Penney and, you know, and others, uh, you know, some, some were... Uh, ready to uh, start moving ahead. You know, others definitely were cautious and said, you know, hey, look, we, we need to wait until we see some regulations to whether this thing's going to be allowed or not. And, you know, the technical issue that people don't know, uh, Travis, in terms of the employee contribution is that actually when employees sign up to put money into a 401k plan themselves, they are legally authorizing their employers to reduce their salary. It's called a salary, actually a salary reduction. Mm-hmm. And then the employer makes that contribution to plan as an employer contribution is technically legally how it works. Oh. And, uh, you know, some of the early ar- articles, uh, one uh, in the Wall Street Journal, for example, uh, mentioned, uh, how would you like to take a salary reduction? You know, because... <laughs> That's what you do when you sign up to uh, make employee contributions to a uh, 401k. Yeah. It's all about how you frame it and and pitch it to people, huh? Exactly. Wow. Okay, man. Very interesting. So yeah, I'm definitely getting, you know, as a lay person here, I'm not, you know, I I have an understanding of this stuff, you know, on the surface level, but yeah, I'm getting the story here. So you're very good at, at um, describing it. So I appreciate that. And I think people listening are, are on board and, and kind of get, you know, how you figure this out and everything. Um, is this, does this happen often? This kind of, uh, you know, maybe little creative uh, changing or, or loophole almost of, of a tax code and then it becoming so widespread and, and used in so many companies? The, there are uh, a number of uh, instances where I've had that opportunity actually during my career. Um yeah, you know, one one of them was long before you know the four hundred one k thing, and uh, you know uh, a couple of others were actually after four hundred one k. You know where I was able able to look in when there were two NAC, new tax laws to uh, kind of get some insight into hey where where might there be opportunities here that are generally being over, overlooked. So so it isn't uh, necessarily unusual. Okay, it's just. Yeah, it's just now that 401k is just such a such a household name, like you said. So it is it is quite fun to call you the father of of the 401k, right? <laughs> uh, I, I guess it is, Travis. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so now we have 
you know, you guys have implemented this and, you know, you're kind of showing companies that it's, it's working and, and, um, the new regulations have come out and everything. And so now more and more companies start implementing it. And are you helping them with that? Sure. That's, uh, basically what, what our business was at that point in time was, uh, providing technical advice to, uh, help them understand how to do it. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then, so that's happening, but then, uh, I'm not sure when this happened in the timeline, but eventually you said that you basically wanted to, to kind of blow up the existing 401k investment structure for something kind of different, right? Yeah, that was uh, a few years ago, probably about maybe four, somewhere in that range, four or five years. Okay. So what kind of, why is that? What, what has changed? Why do you want to kind of change it up now? Uh, the uh, reason for that is because um, it became much, much too expensive for participants. We we go back to the early days. In the beginning, Travis, the uh, you know the way this was structured. Well, let me just talk before we get into the expenses. Let me just talk about the investment structure itself, uh, and then you know we can get into the fee issue. Mm-hmm. The um, early plans participants had two investment choices, if you can believe that. Yeah, one one was a fixed guaranteed type of investment, and, and the other would have been an equity mutual fund. Mm-hmm. And you split your contributions in 25% multiples. So there are only five possibilities, ranging from zero, you know, 100% to zero, 75, 25, 50, 50, 2575 or 0 100% split between those two options. Okay. That was you know all the choices you had. It was very simple and easy for participants to understand. In fact, it probably took about 2 minutes for me to explain their investment options. It wasn't hard at all. Mm-hmm. So, but also in that in the beginning was all of the fees were paid by the employer except the basic investment fee, you know, the administration, the record keeping, you know, legal uh, auditing fees, uh, all of them. And so, you know, what I've covered in the book in detail is the history of what happened to the fees over the years. And, you know, getting into that, it's uh, the picture isn't pretty, uh, uh, Travis. Uh, You know, what happened is uh, eventually, and I guess this would have been uh, probably around the uh, you know, around the early '80s. Uh, the uh, investment community started to become aware of the fact that, wow, I mean, there's significant money going into these plans, you know, chance to make some real money. And the uh, you know, 401k turned the mutual fund industry into what it is today, completely. You know, before 401k, it was. Yeah, pretty much small mom and pop type operations. Uh, you know, you had Vanguard, you had Fidelity, uh, you know, Dreyfus, uh, American funds, you know, probably about a half a dozen or so name brand fund families that yeah, they just weren't that big, you mm-hmm. know, at that point in time. You know, and today, I mean, in the whole industry, I mean, it's just a monster industry. Yeah. So, so what happened uh, is that, we got to what became bundled arrangements. 
that were offered by the mutual fund companies, the insurance companies, et cetera. And the reality, frankly, is what got bundled were the fees. So I identified in the book, uh, you know, one of the uh, Fortune 500 companies as an example that, you know, I interviewed when this happened. And, you know, they, they moved their investments to one of the leading mutual fund companies at that time. And the cost of the participants went from around, you know, 0.10 to 0.12% to, to 1%, you know, almost, you know, basically about 10 times increase in fees. Mm-hmm. And in that process, the employer was able to eliminate about $100,000 of record-keeping fees that they were paying themselves. And that got picked up now by the mutual fund company. So at the time, you know, the HR director told me he was, uh, he was being pressured to reduce uh, fees. And, you know, this was an easy way to accomplish that was to, you know, pass the, this thing off to the mutual fund company. And, you know, I remember at the time discussing this with the mutual fund company and said, look, why don't you guys give 401k participants a break? You know, because your pricing structure now is based on individuals coming in and buying your shares where they're investing, you know, a few thousand dollars, you know, 5,000, 10,000, whatever. You got somebody now that's giving you $100 million, you know? Yeah. Their fees ought to be a lot less. Right. And he told us, well, we have to treat all our buyers the same. You know, we can't have different fee structures. And what's funny about that today, if you take a mutual fund company like, you know, take American Funds as an example, some of their funds have, you know, 10, 12 different, different classes with different fee structures. Mm-hmm. You know, the participants and buyers of those funds don't have a clue what they're buying, you know, what they're paying. I mean, it's uh, become so complicated and convoluted. So that was the first step. Then it got worse, unfortunately. And when it got worse was when the um, investment advice got it added in. Investment advice, managed accounts. And, you know, um, what happened here is it became clear that you're trying to, well, let me back up a minute. What what happened, I have to add this first, was we, we evolved from two funds with 25% multiples. We gradual, gradually moved to three funds, five, five funds, you know, 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 funds being offered to participants. Wow. So what happened then is the splits uh, got reduced to 1% multiples from 25. So what that meant is participants had literally thousands of potential ways that they could build their portfolio rather than five. Mm-hmm. So it became much, much more complicated for participants. So what happened is a ton of money was spent and, uh, you know, providing education and financial advisors came into the picture to help participants decide how to invest their money. And after a while, it became clear that participants either lacked the level of interest they should have or certainly lacked the level of knowledge. So online investment advice emerged. 
And I played a role without getting into the details of helping, you know, that business to get launched. The idea behind it was that for, you know, maybe as little as $10 a year, a participant could get actual direction and advice of how to invest their money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it looked very attractive and appealing. And what happened is the investment community fought that because they didn't want some independent entity telling participants how to invest their money because it would invest their bottom line. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the head of one of the big mutual fund companies told me that. He said, look, we're, uh, you know, no, what, no way I'm going to let some independent entity advise participants and affect our bottom line. So then what happened is as interest and advice became um, you know, more popular and the providers were asked whether they were providing Bryce advice, they flipped this thing and started to embrace it. And the reason they did it was they added another layer of fees. <laughs> so typ- typically they added on top of, let's say, the maybe the average 1% they were getting paid, you know, 1% to 2%, they added another percent on top of it. Wow. So, so for many plans, investment costs went up to 2 to 2.5%. And, and then they went out, and I attended a meeting where uh, you know, one of the large providers, uh, their uh, you know, guy uh, who was uh, out there um, participating in the meeting, told the investment advisors, hey, here's a way for you to make another 0.25% in addition to what you're already, already made, making if you add our inve- investment advice. <laughs> Man, so yeah, wow. So, so, so this then is kind of a long answer to why in the world did I say I would blow this investment structure up and start <laughs> over? Uh, yeah, yeah. What 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 happened uh, next after we got these products in place was they didn't get utilized the way they should have by participants because they they were offered as Hey, it's available. You know, if you want want to utilize the advice, here it is. You can use it. But only about typically 10 to 20 percent of participants would, would do that. You know, mm-hmm. those, those that were less knowledgeable and needed help the most, you know, typically didn't go anywhere near it. So, so then what happened, we had a, a new type of fund that was introduced called the target maturity or target retirement fund. So ones that are you're know, labeled 220. 225, you know, 230, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind them is what they did was they packaged the investments in a way so that participants, all they had to do was pick a fund that was going to line up with when they intended to retire, such as 2040. You know, that's all they needed to do was say, here's an answer that if you pick this, you'll get the investment mix that basically makes sense for you. And so I embraced that and certainly started to support that idea in a big way. And, you know, those funds really took off and are, you know, continuing to grow in a big way. And the nice thing, you know, about those funds is if if it's done right, is, you know, they can be purchased for as little as 0. you know, 1.5% or less. Oh, wow. You know, maybe with a bit of add-on fees on top of it. So... What what happened, uh, what caused me to make the comment about blowing up and starting over was 
I had uh, taken a plan that had 100 million in assets in it, you know, and had the typical structure, you know, with 13 or 14 different funds. I went to that employer and said, how about if we eliminate all this nonsense, you know, make it easier for your participants that we, what we do is we replace that with target maturity funds. They're only going to cost them instead of, you know, 0.75% a year that they're paying now will cost them only 0.15%. And they don't have to worry about how to you know, make their investments. And so this employer agreed to do that, uh, Travis. And uh, so we changed the plan so that everybody's money was put into these types of funds automatically. Mm-hmm. So rather than them have decide you know, how to invest, they were automatically put in these funds. Now, we also gave participants the opportunity, if they still wanted to do it themselves, that they can pick from any mutual fund that they wanted to. Yeah, we didn't limit it to 14 or 15. We said, you got hundreds of them available. You know, if you're, you want to put the time in and you know, you think you're smart enough to do it on your own, hey, you, uh, you have unlimited opportunity to do that. Oh. So, uh, so what happened is over 90% of the participants you know, choose to leave the money in the, uh, you know, the target maturity funds and said, hey, look, this is a heck of a lot easier than you're trying to figure it out on our own. So so when I did that interview, that's uh, what I was referring to. I was saying, hey, if we, yeah, we didn't have that kind of toll available back in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that was when I made the comment of we're starting over today. The way I would have done it was rather than having participants make their own picks, you know, I would have uh, structured plans to automatically put participants into this type of investment where they didn't have to try and learn about, you know, large cap, small cap, emerging markets, and, you know, all the other stuff they're, uh, you know, supposed to try and learn to make uh, decent investment decisions. So, you know, that's the way I would have uh, done it starting over from scratch. Okay, I see. So that makes sense. But I mean, there would have been really no way for you to know, you know, back in in 1979 or 80 that it would have gotten this complicated, really, would there have been? Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, so- it, yeah, what happened? And basically, the way I label it in the book is, uh, you know, ultimately, the investment community hijacked this. Mm. You know, they're making much too much money. Right. And... You know, we have, I mean, uh, mentioned Fidelity as an example. Their, their own employees have sued them <laughs> in, oh in one, uh, you, you know, over how uh, their investments are structured in their own plan. Right. And that's happened with other providers, too, you wow. know, where participants sued and, you know, have won uh, major uh, concessions. Man. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a story. I mean, let me, ju- I mean, just to really get down to, you know, um, Applying this at the basic level, uh, a couple of years ago, I um, tackled, you know, over half the workforce doesn't have any uh, retirement plan available at the workplace. Wow. And so a couple of years ago, I focused on, you know, how, how can we help small employers? And I put together a guide. Uh, it's available on my website. It's titled uh, Set Up Your Own 401k with a subtitle of And Save a Lot of Money. <laughs> and it contains three designs that small employers can set up that have no fees, 
to set up or to administrate and can cost their participants as little as, you know, 0.10% a year or whatever. And as I was, the reason I'm bringing this up is I was finishing the guide. I had a small employer locally here who asked me if I could look at their 401k plan. They, uh, yeah, I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And I went in and, you know, they were unhappy with their uh, service provider. They were paying, employer was paying 1500 plus a year. And, you know, there were only eight employees. Participants were paying 2.75%. Wow. I mean, yeah, outrageous. I mean, 2.75% is absurd. Mm-hmm. So I told him, I gave him one of my guides and I said, hey, look, model three here is clearly what you should do, you know. Uh, go ahead, you know, replace what you've got with Model 3. The finance person, you know, held off on this for a while. And finally, after a couple months, she uh, followed through on it. And so I visited with her afterwards. I said, well, how'd this go? She said, well, first of all, it was a lot easier than I expected. I I mean, I thought it'd be a lot harder. But, you know, this eliminated all the employer fees. You know, no employer fees now. Costs to participants went from 2.75% 2.75% to 0.15. I mean, you know, phenomenal difference. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so so that's how bad this is. I mean, a lot of small employers are just paying much more than what they should. And, you know, the tragic thing, that kind of difference can mean, you know, uh, five to maybe as much as 10 years of different in, uh additional income, you know, in retirement. I mean, uh, you know, many participants are concerned about having enough and, you know, you you eliminate that uh, much in excess fees. Why uh, that clearly can mean additional five to 10 years of payout during retirement. Wow. Yeah. That is, it's crazy how much fees make a difference like that. When you say five to 10 years, that's just incredible. Something that people definitely should be looking into. Um, and that's very cool that you, you know, that you're, you're helping small employers who can, you know, help their employees. Cause that's, that's a lot too. Cause you know, we're talking about the larger companies and stuff, but yeah, a lot of smaller employers where they can help their employees is, is very important. So that's really cool that you offer that. And, um, just real quick, we'll mention this again, but your, your website is 401kbena.com, correct? Uh, correct. Yeah. And the, uh, the guide's 1899 and, uh, ma- many small employers, Travis, are, sold 401k and it's the wrong type of plan. I mean, you know, anybody, the father of 401k is a guy you wouldn't expect to say that, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely the wrong plan for many small employers. It's too complicated, too expensive, you know, liability exposure that they can avoid by uh, using one of these alternatives. And, you know, another, another plus with these alternatives is it's a lot easier when employees terminate. And yeah, it's an issue for, many small employers, when employees terminate with a 401k, you know, there's a lot of paperwork you have to give them, you know, explaining their options. And, you know, they legally have the right to even leave their money in the plan if they uh, have more than $5,000 in it. And, uh, you know, uh, you have have some significant number of employees that do that. And the employer then has a burden, you know, to provide a lot of information ongoing constantly to those former employees, you know, it's a, it's a headache for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with these designs I have in the guide, uh, you know, when an employee leaves, you just say goodbye to them. You know, the account they uh, have uh, is theirs. They own it. Uh, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. 
that's you know that's not something that I would have ever really thought about. And you know, hearing you talk about it, where just the the practicality of something where you have to keep in contact and and keep updating and the the paperwork and everything, you really have to think about all that kind of stuff as you know additional expenses and time and everything. And and then you know even just with educating people, like how much time and and effort that takes too. So. Um, it is interesting to hear that because that's just, it's a side that's obviously there, but I just wouldn't think about it in the, in structuring these things, you know, um, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into it because it gets too uh, involved here, but 401k has, I'll just mention quick, uh, there are two things you have to comply with. Uh, one of them, one of them is called top heavy mm-hmm. and the other one is this non-discrimination test. And both of those are very complicated issues for small employers. Uh, you know, they have to deal uh, in terms of compliance. And uh, yeah, frankly, they're uh, you know they're often ignored uh, when you got fi- financial people out there selling these plans. And one of the things that's troubling, uh, you know, to keep an eye on. Uh, last fall, there was legislation in- introduced by I think it's Congressman Neal, if I remember right, from Massachusetts, who's uh, chairman of the um, finance committee uh, in the House. And you know, one of the things that that legislation would have required was employers to uh, offer a retirement program. And I just read last week that they're now modifying that, which is something I've recommended. I actually contacted their staffer about this and that, you know, small employers that don't have, offer a retirement program, if they have 10 or more employees should be all required to offer at least a payroll deduction IRA plan. And uh, unfortunately, I read that the bill that uh, they're going to introduce uh, again this summer uh, is apparently uh, going to require those employers to adopt a 401k plan. And uh, that uh, was uh, was troubling to me because it's the wrong type of plan for many of them. And uh, uh, you know, I was disappointed to see that they're heading in that direction. And uh, I'm sure, frankly, that's coming because of financial pressure they're getting from, uh, you know, some of the fo- financial community. If that's what they need to do. Uh, okay, man. Um, okay, so just to jump back real quick, um, you talked about uh, target maturity funds, which were that's kind of like the, the prepackaged kind of thing where you just pick the date that you're going to retire at. Correct. Okay. And so that that's for, um, would that be for larger companies who are offering the 401k? It, it, it's any size, Travis. Um, oh, okay. You know, most of these plans, you know, now offer those funds, you know, they're included in them. And, you know, since, since you brought them up, let me just uh, talk a little bit about them. The, uh, for, for people who are in their 30s, 40s and you know in early 50s, they clearly are are, are a good option. You know uh, if if you're not going to put the time into really studying how to manage your your money, uh, you know they they provide a good mix. You know they automatically rebalance, which means you know as the stock market and bonds shift around, you know they they keep the ratio and balance automatic for you. And they also you know, reduce, reduce your risk exposure 
uh, as you get older by reducing the level of stock and uh, put more emphasis on, on bonds. Uh, however, I do want to comment on the fact that for people who are closer to retirement and already retired, I, uh, have, a, uh, I have a big concern about having your money in these type of funds or in others that are recommended by the uh, investment professionals that have the mix of stock and bonds that you know, are used industry-wide. And uh, I have, the uh, reason I have a lot of concern is, you know, most people who are retired or close to retirement, frankly, can afford the level of risk that they're placed in, you know, with this type of answer. Mm -hmm. And I've, uh, you know, I've worked through that and given examples uh, in the last part of the book that I have out there. Uh, you know, here, here's the problem. Uh, back in 2007 and 2008, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, this type of fund and others that, you know, were called managed account or however you got there, lost close to 30% in value. Uh, you know, for those people who are retired or close to retirement. Oh, man. And so, so if you're retired, and especially if you just retired, you can't afford that kind of loss. Yeah. You can't afford it. And, you know, what the investment people tell them, and I've heard them do this, of, uh, is, well, don't worry, it'll come back. Just hang in there. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. And so now they tell them, see, you know, came back and look at what the market is. You, you know, you did really well, but they didn't. And let me explain why. Uh, you know, and I documented this in the book. I, ran and compared where a retiree would be who took this approach if they retired in 2003, you know, compared to what they're told when they retire. And that is, hey, look, assume you're going to get a 6% return, you know, with this kind of investment, and you're going to be in great shape. And when you run the numbers, which I've done in the book historically, the end of 2008, you had far, much far less than what you would have with a 6% return. And this is weird because, you know, those funds over that stretch average better than a 6% return. So, you know, an advisor would say, well, look, you know, you've gotten better than a 6% return, so you're, you're great. But here, you know, the problem is when you are investing new money and you're drawing out, and you get a 30% loss, you now have to start withdrawing, selling more shares to withdraw the amount that you need. So, you know, if you need, if your plan's $1,000 a month of income that you're drawing out and it drops 30%, you, you have to sell more shares now. Mm, okay. You know, the, what was planned, and you're never going to recover. Right. You know, you're never going to an example I use first I have in the book is assuming you retired in 2003, and from 2003 to 2008, things, things were pretty good. So then I took an example and said, well, suppose you retired in 2008. In the first year reti you retired, you know, dropped 30%. You're, you're, you're never going to recover. I mean, you're buried. Mm -hmm. And... Why I'm concerned now and talking about this, Travis, is I'm uh, I, I definitely feel that uh, 
you know, the stock market, uh, at some point, we're going to hit another 2007, eight. I, I don't know when. I'm not a prophet. But, you, you know, we've always had bear markets. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we've uh, gotten to the point where, you know, all of a sudden now we're going to go for another 10, 20 years and, you know, not have a, a period where the market gets hammered again. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the bond market uh, is risky now, uh, generally. Uh you know, it's not likely to be a great place to be over the next five to 10 years because people don't, most people don't realize it, but when interest rates rise, bond prices drop. And, you know, we're not likely to, we're more likely to be in a uh, situation where interest rates will be rising over the next five to 10 years than dropping. Mm-hmm. So therefore, bonds aren't, you know, aren't really a good place to be right now. Okay. either i see so so it's important uh you know my my opinion uh you know most people who are retired or close to retirement don't have millions of dollars mm-hmm. you know they have much more limited amounts and they need to be concerned about protecting that amount and hopefully having it stretch over their lifetime yeah and they can't they can't afford to be in something that's uh likely to give them a, a 25, 30% loss, you know, sometime over the next five years or so. Just can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So that is, yeah, that's very good to know. So that's just kind of your, you know, we don't know when it's going to come or, or whatever, but just, you know, following the, it's, it's likely that it will come within the next five years or so. So it's, um, so to just be aware of that and you give, you know, kind of specific advice for that in, in your book and everything, correct? Yeah. And I've, I've laid it out, you know, uh, going back and, you know, kind of mathematically run through the numbers say, Hey, look, you know, this, this, this is what it looks like. And, uh, you know, we, we've been in a period now where, you know, we're 10 years plus of a favorable stock market and, uh, you know, it's the longest in history, you know, so, Keeping going for uh, another uh, five years or more would uh, certainly uh, be historically, um, you know, unusual. Never happened. Mm-hmm. Man, well, this is great, Ted, that you're sharing this information. It's it's so interesting to hear, and um, I love to hear your perspective on it, especially you know how you've kind of, you know, you started this whole thing, you know, kind of, and. Uh, and went through it all and have seen it all. And now you're telling us, you know, what we should do and, and, and kind of look out for. So I really appreciate it and and love hearing from you. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about too, was if you had ever, uh, uh, tried to kind of, you know, copy or patent write your, your 401k (laughs) finding. Uh, yeah, actually, I think I mentioned earlier that we did. And, Mm. uh, you know, I, uh, I learned a couple of things that I was only 39 at the time. Uh, so I, uh, I wasn't smart enough at that time to learn that if you get an answer, no answer from an attorney, you look for a new attorney. <laughs> and the other thing I learned is that, you, you know, I uh, ask an attorney who's an expert in uh, retirement law rather than patent and copyright. And that was the wrong thing to do also. Yeah. But anyhow, I, um, uh, was interviewed on NPR quite a few years ago and you know gave that answer when I was asked and 
I don't know, it just came to mind. I said off the top of my head, it would be all right if each participant sent me a quarter. You know, everybody who's a participant in the 401k plan. Yeah. At the time, there were probably about 40 million of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, good. Oh, I got off, you know, the interview about a week later, I went out and picked the mail out of the box and uh, it was a little heavier than normal. And I you know, slid the envelopes, you know, and uh, could tell there were quarters sliding around. <laughs> so two of the envelopes actually had quarters in them and one of them had a 25 cent check. So somehow those people actually tracked down my address, uh, you know, and did that. And and by the way, I still have the 25 sent quarter from somebody in Ohio. So. <laughs> nice. That's, that's awesome. I love that people did that. That is a, that's hilarious. And I like the 25 cent check too. That's fun. Yeah. Hey, there's one, one thing else that, uh, yeah, I covered in the book that we haven't talked about and that's, uh, you know, the pension system. Uh, there's, um, for, first of all, there's real, really a misconception out there and um, there, there's a widely held myth just to start discussion on this uh, Travis that we once had a wonderful retirement plan uh, program where everybody retired at retirement and they got a pension for life mm-hmm. have you ever heard that oh yeah and, and you know it happened during the last presidential election and by by the way I'm I'm uh, I'm not politically happy happy with anyone. So the fact I'm going to mention the that then President Obama and, and um, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, made these comments during their campaign about uh, hey we we need to get back to the good old days where everybody had a pension. Uh, you know, doesn't necessarily mean I'm uh, a favor of the other party. Okay, uh, so uh, pretty unhappy with both of them. Right, uh, but. Uh, yeah, let me tell you about the good old days. 1960, I started in the home office of Problem Mutual in Philadelphia. They had a pension plan. And to become a participant in it, you had to be 30 if you were a male. You had to be 35 if you were a female. And that usually gets some reaction from females when I say that. But <laughs> the other part of it was you had to stay until you were age 60 until you got a benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you left before that, you got nothing. Zippo. Man. And, and that was true of pension plans, okay? You know, in companies, some companies were notorious for getting rid of employees, you know, as they were approaching that point where they would have what's known as a vested benefit. Right. And another thing is that when businesses went under at that point, uh, if their plan was underfunded, there wasn't any safety net. You know, many retirees and people who spent 20, 30 years working lost a major part of their pension. Uh, some lost all. And, uh, you know, that was uh, dealt with a bit when uh, ERISA was passed in 1974 and Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation was put in place that improved that situation. But also, uh, Travis, there were, uh, you know, there were, there were never more than 30% of the private workforce covered by a pension plan. Huh. Never more than 30%. Wow. So this idea that, you know, everybody had a pension is, uh, you know, it's a myth. Yeah. Uh, if you work for a large employer, you uh, probably had one. But most small companies didn't have 
pension programs. I mean, it was not likely at all. Right. Uh, so, so that's some historical background. But let me let me get to the point I want to make here for people today here that I've covered in the book, and, and that is the fact that participants in pension plans. And, and by the way, I started in that side of the business. You know, I used to sell and administer pension plans. We we did that, and you know, in our business that we were in. Mm-hmm. But after that explaining why I've covered it in, in, in the book, it, it became impossible to sell pension plans uh, after 1974. Nobody would uh, go into them. Uh, and uh, so I had to shift gears. Uh, but the problem here, the fundamental problem we have that's systemic is regardless of whether it's the federal government with Social Security, whether it's state or local governments or private employers, all of these entities have been allowed to make pension promises that they haven't properly funded. And as a result of that, participants in pension plans have as much risk as they do in a plan like a 401k. They just don't know it. Um, They're not aware of it. Uh-huh. Uh, so they don't have the level of security that they think they do. And you know, I pointed out uh, a number of reasons in the book. If you're in one of these pension plans and have the opportunity to take cash uh, when you leave, you uh, you should seriously think about doing that. And uh, you know, I've uh, I've explained why. Uh, but one of them is even if you want, let's say you want a guaranteed income for life, and you have the opportunity to take cash, you'll actually have a higher level of financial security. If you do that by buying a uh, an immediate income annuity from a top quality insurance company, you one you know it's been around for hundreds of years and has you know has a high ranking. Now, you know there are a lot of bad stuff about annuities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know a lot of bad stuff, but I'm uh, I'm talking about a fixed income one where you know you get a guaranteed income for life. You know you have a lot of other funny stuff going on, you know, and you don't have people getting paid a ton of money to sell them. Uh, and the re- reason you have greater financial security in that environment is uh, chances are that you're in a state plan, uh, your local municipal plan or employer plan, that it's underfunded. And I'm sure, you know, you, you've read about this, Travis. I mean, uh, you know, states like Illinois and you know, Pennsylvania, where I have am here, and California, and you know, many others. Uh, you know, there's some tremendously underfunded governmental plans, mm-hmm. and employer ones as well. So, so you're you know, you're part of that system where there aren't enough assets potentially. Uh, if you go out in, in, in into annuity from a private, a top quality insurance company, you have the assets of them. They actually have assets. You know, they actually have hard assets to back these. But in addition, uh, they uh, they participate in state insurance funds. You know, like, you know, if it's a New York New York state or whatever state, the state has a fund. They're sim- kind of similar to what a bank backing would have with F- FDIC, you know, if a bank went under. Same thing with an insurance fund. Mm-hmm. And well, the difference there is that insurance fund with the state has assets and no liabilities, okay? Oh. Yeah, they have assets without liabilities. Uh-huh. 
if you take the take the private pension system, we have an entity called the PBGC. Um, you know, the insurance quasi-government insurance agency that pays when you know steel workers, when airlines, etc., go out of business. Uh, you know, they step in and guarantee pension benefits, okay. pension benefit guarantee corp. Well, the problem with them is they have a lot more liability than what they have assets. Mm. So, so you're in a system that is in the red. And, and to take a specific example right now is one of the systems that you know they uh, guarantee benefit for are multi-employer union pension plans. One of those is the Central State Teamsters. Central State Teamsters, when President Obama was still in office, trustees of that got Congress to pass legislation to reduce the benefits to retirees by 40% or so because they were going to run out of money. Whew. President Obama surprisingly signed that legislation. That legislation still being fought in court. Mm-hmm. Efforts are being made by the trustees of that system, and frankly, you know, uh, groups that don't want to see uh, these pension cuts to get Congress to bail them out. Uh, but you know, that's that's a specific example here of uh, you know the issues that that's involved. That you, you know of uh, why that. Uh, Pension benefit guarantee system isn't, uh, it doesn't have the assets to back up these benefits long term. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, scary stuff when, you know, people are promised these benefits and then it's, it's really not going to happen, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, my concern about this is that, uh, you know, the, the next time, I mean, I've, I've been saying for years now, my talks around the country that, you know, it doesn't matter what the retirement system is, whether it's Social Security, whether it's a pension plan, whether it's a 401k or whatever, all, all of these plans are dependent upon a healthy con- economy, a robust stock market over the next 10, 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. You know, they all are. And uh, eh, that, 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 Unfortunately, isn't likely to happen. Right. So, so it's uh, the potential is there. You know, if we have another two thousand seven or eight, uh, that it uh, it's it's not going to be nice. Man. Yeah, this stuff. It, it you know, it's scary to think about. It's important to think about it, and you know, there there's a lot on the line. So it, it can be intimidating for people, but it is extremely important to to learn about this stuff and, and consider that. You know what what you were told may not be the truth and may not be happening. So it's it's great that we have you know folks like you who are kind of looking at the whole big picture and, and telling us how it applies to to us as individuals. You know. Yeah, and I don't have an axe to grind on any of this stuff, Travis. I'm uh, yeah, I don't have anybody paying me. You know, I'm not anybody's. Uh, no one's paying me to promote ideas. I, I know uh, the reason I'm mentioning that. I recently did a. Um, I, I was interviewed, uh, you know, extensively for an article that um, Wall Street Journal writer guy, you know, I've known for many, many years was doing uh, where he said, hey, look, if 
I want you to tell me if, if uh, what would be the perfect ideal retirement system, you know, if we could do it. And so I, I told him, I said, hey, look, I don't, I don't even want to talk about that. Uh, re- reason being, it's not going to happen, first of all. You know, why run down that rabbit hole? Because, you know, to you know, take everything, kind of scrap it and start with something else politically isn't going to happen. So what's the point? Right. Uh, but the reason I'm getting into that is, you know, there's someone out there now who gets a lot of publicity and, you know, I've known her for years and, you know, she has a a plan out there of uh, what we need to do is adopt a, um, a mandatory defined contribution plan that, you know, the government uh, puts in place federally where employees are required to contribute maybe 2% of pay and employers as well. And, you know, make that mandatory and, governed uh you know, run by the uh, by the government and uh you, you know so there are ideas like that floating around there but i understand you know there's financial backing involved in you know promoting those ideas so i, I don't have anybody backing mine you know? right i'm uh and, and uh you know i say hey look if 401k gets shot down uh you know it's, it's not gonna matter to me it's uh not gonna end i'm not gonna lose sleep over it so yeah so i think you know the, ma- the main thing and, and that's what i did with this guys i think that you know to focus on hey what are things we could do to try and uh improve what we have and maybe potentially have a shot politically at uh you know making that happen to strengthen what we have in place mm-hmm. yeah no i mean that that's great to hear that you know that you are in that position and and what you're doing and helping out is great. So I, I truly appreciate it. And, you know, I, um, being, I'm only 25, so this is not a huge, like it's not stuff that my friend circle is really talking about. So it's, it's great to hear it from you and talk about this stuff and, and start to think about it and understand it. So, um, I can definitely appreciate that. An important thing, uh, there, by the way, is, um, uh, the greatest benefit of a 401k, if you have it available, isn't the tax break, and it's not even the uh, the match from the employer if you have that. It's the uh, fact that it converts you from a spender into a saver. Mm-hmm. And I know it did that for me. You know, I mean, the uh, money I put into the 401k, I uh, I would have never had the discipline to do that on on my own. You know, with a young family, four kids, and you know, all the financial responsibility you have with that, why, uh, you know, it was, wasn't easy. And I had many individuals over the years, including, you know, ones that, you know, just hit their th- early 30s say, wow, yeah, this is great. I mean, I've got ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 accumulated that, yeah, I, I know I've never done that on my own. And so, so that's what 401k does is it converts spenders into savers. And, uh, you, you know, at your age and, and younger, it's critical to start doing that. And, you know, even if it's only 1% of pay, you know, to start and then look at adding an additional percent every year, you know, to, um, you know, to get uh, to a level maybe where you need to be longer term. And, hey, uh, Travis, I, I've been around people, you know, over my years that run the spectrum from, uh, you know, billionaires, multimillionaires to, you know, totally down and out. And, uh, you know, the, um, they're spenders and they're savers, you know, uh-huh. uh, I've seen people making what most would consider 
outrageous amounts of money, certainly up in the top 1%, that don't have anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're still barely skipping by, you know, yeah. to pay, okay? Uh, I've seen uh, individuals uh, making very modest amounts of money that manage to accumulate some significant amounts, be, you know, because they're thrifty. So, uh, so the the problem, you, you know, if you aren't saving is it's always, well, if I just have a little more, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> just have a little more. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it still doesn't happen, you know, where you get another five or 10%. So, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta start getting the game early. And, I'll just make one one last point of that. When you when you reach retirement, you you need a certain sum of money. You know, it's either going to be a minimum of ten times or more what you're making at that point in time, whatever it might be. You're going to need you know ten fifteen times that amount. Mm -hmm. And if you start saving earlier, uh, you know less than half of that will have to come from money you save versus investment income you can earn. Right. If you don't get in the game serious about it until you're in your 50s, you have 75% or 80 is going to have to come from money you take out of your pocket to save versus investment income that you can get. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're facing. Right. So, so start early. It makes sense to do that. And yeah, I found that, you know, it, it may seem at least for me personally, it, it may be like, man, how can I take out, you know, an extra 5% of what I'm, I'm making, you know, a year or a month to do that. But it's like, you know, once I implement it, it's really like, it, it, it's not a difference at all. It's, it's very, uh, you know, easy to do. And it just becomes the new, you know, way of life, like the life, my lifestyle just changes a little bit. And, you know, it doesn't make a difference. And it feels great to know that I am, you know, doing that savings and, and thinking ahead towards the future, it, it, it does feel good. And it's, it's very doable. Once you just kind of make the switch, it's, it's almost inevitable to, to you just kind of readjust and then, and go with it, you know? Yeah. And you, you know, I mean, there, uh, you, you, you obviously need to make enough where you're in the position to do that. I mean, there are many that, you know, single moms, uh, barely, you know, getting by, uh, et cetera. But, uh, you know, when, when you're in a position where you have discretionary income and you're buying Starbucks uh, coffee and you know, you're going out after work for a drink or two or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, where, where you're, you're doing things that are by choice that aren't necessity, uh, you know, you, you have that opportunity to, uh, look at it and say, well, what happens? You know, how, how do I find, you know, 20 bucks a week or whatever? You know, what are the things I'm doing that I can uh, cut back on and, you know, get you there? Mm -hmm. Man, great. Well, um, this has been awesome, Ted. I love talking to you about this stuff. It's, you know, it's been extremely interesting and um, I hope people listening feel the same way. But um, I know we also wanted to hit on um, Compassion, uh, Compassion International which um, you're kind of involved with and, and contribute to. So can you kind of just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've been uh, doing uh, fundraising uh, for them uh, through a variety of uh, things. And, uh, you know, they're a great organization. They, uh, you know, they provide support to uh, the most needy children uh, 
you know, around the world. And so kind of what hit me uh, as, as a result of something I was getting involved in a couple of years ago and <laughs> deciding whether to do it or not, uh, you know, I uh, was, was led, you know, kind of got the idea that, hey, rather than giving me the quarter, <laughs> you know, if you've benefited from 401k to say, hey, look, if you've benefited from 401k, you know, consider doing a, you know, either a one-time gift to Compassion International or, you know, supporting a child or whatever. And, uh, you know, at that time they had, uh, in addition to, you know, supporting a child each month, they had four four projects they had running, um, you know, kind of re- remembering some of them. Uh, you know, one, one of them was uh, helping train youth, you know, young people to become self-sufficient, providing uh, funding to help them maybe start their own businesses, uh, you know, to do that. Uh, you know, clean water for a community that didn't have clean water. Uh, you know, another one was uh, pre-natal pre, uh, care for pregnant young ladies who weren't getting any treatment, you know, proud prior to childbirth and you know, all the things that go wrong when, you know, when that happens, uh, providing that level of support. And then I guess the last one was actually, you know, early childhood uh, investment and development for, you know, kids that, you know, were under uh, five, six years old and weren't going to be getting the, uh, you know, the right level of nourishment to even, you know, have a chance at surviving and developing. And uh, so, you know, over 80 percent of their funds, you uh, you know, go hands-on to those type of projects. And uh, so appreciate the opportunity to chat about it. Wow. Awesome. Cool. And uh, I'll get, you know, I'll get links to, to Compassion International and throw that um, in the show notes so people can click on that and check it out and everything and, and get involved with that. And um, you're at 401kbena.com. That's where we can get the book. Um, anything else where I, we should send people? Yeah, well, the guide's on there. Actually, the book uh, is isn't on there. It's at uh, you know, it's at Amazon and uh, you know other places that market books. So okay, perfect. The and four four one k forty years later. Right. Okay. Perfect. Four one k forty years later. I'll yeah, I'll throw a link to that on on Amazon too, so people can get that easy with the two day shipping and stuff. But yeah, this is great. I mean, for anyone listening, if this kind of raise any red flags or, or alerts and, and kind of what you're doing and what you have, definitely uh, check out Ted's book and, uh, you know, give it a read through for some very specific advice and, and examples and everything. So, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you being on, Ted. It, w- it was very fun to talk to you and, and very informative. So thank you so much. Thank you, Travis. <laughs> oh, boy, what an episode. Thanks for sticking around and listening to it. This is Travis again uh, here on my own. But as a thank you for sticking around, I wanted to give you a free sticker, a free Curiosityness sticker, 100% free, don't have to pay for shipping, you don't have to enter your credit card info, it's really free. Uh, to get one, go to curiosityness.com slash free sticker, and it's yours. I'll send it to you right away, and, and you can slap that baby wherever you want to represent Curiosityness. So uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Just wanted to give you guys a little gift, um, so just go ahead and claim that at curiosityness.com slash free sticker. And uh, visit our website too, curiosityness.com. I have an Instagram, Curiosityness podcast. I'm on Instagram too as Trav DeRose, me, Travis, the host. You can follow me if you want. Uh, we're on Twitter, Curiosityness TV. 
is our uh, handle there. We're on Facebook as Curiosityness. All the links to this stuff are in the show notes. You can just click on it and follow us if you want to, because I post some cool little clips and, and extra stuff that you don't get from the uh, podcast onto social media. So you can join in on that and comment and, and talk about me and the show or whatever you want to do. Uh, we're on YouTube, too, as Curiosityness. And I have an email address, Travis at Curiosityness.com. Send me an email. Send me your thoughts on the show, suggestions for new guests, tips on things to make the show better and and help me with my interviewing and and get better and everything like that. So uh, constructive feedback is always nice. So send me an email. And uh, also reviews super help. Uh, Really appreciate reviews on the show in uh, Stitcher or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um, Just drop a review. That's extremely helpful. You don't even have to make it five stars. You can can lower it. Uh, I would prefer a higher one, but whatever. Whatever you want to do. I won't coax you into something. Uh, but any sort of review helps. I really honestly do appreciate it. So um, yeah, thank you again, guys, for sticking around and listening to this end blabber with me. But uh, have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye.